think Mike Duffy called them the boys in short pants. And I they're both boys and girls because I've seen them. Women and men. Hello, this is episode 30 of The Boys in Short Pants, the 31st episode. I'm Laurent Carbonell. I'm Ethan Rainbow. And uh, today we're, we're just, uh, you know, I think we're, the, the stories keep coming, or rather the, the one story keeps coming, of uh, what's going on with uh, the Conflict of Interest Commissioner and Conflict of Interests more broadly. Yeah, it's hard to find things to talk about when basically every question period for the past Three weeks, I would say. Three weeks, if Easily. not greater, have been yeah. filled with Bill Morneau and his ethical challenges. Yes. Um, so the first thing we want to talk about is uh, another person related to the story who had a very bad week, uh, and that's Mary Dawson. So Mary Dawson, as you may remember, is the Conflict of Interest and Ethics Commissioner um, and has sort of been the secondary character in the Morneau story. Um, but as of maybe the last week or so, there have been a few more articles sort of pointing the lens back at her and looking at her actions and all of this. Yeah. And, like, Althea Raj wrote a piece on this, and there was a couple others. And then there was her office's, like, pretty catastrophic mistake. I, I mean, I'd call it, like, communications let, malpractice. Yeah, like, let's not bury the lead on this one. I think, like, it's worth talking about exactly what happened here. She put out, earlier this week, uh, the week of, like, you know, November, the first week of November, let's put it that way. Sure. Uh, she put out a statement to the effect that there may have been other cabinet ministers using similar loopholes, uh, and that it was anywhere up to five and that then... I think I think the phrasing was fewer than five. Fewer than five, Fewer yes. than five, to, to be clear yes. here, because yeah. language matters in this, because it was all so people, a debate around which words were used. Yeah, so people asked her, okay, so, so how many? And she said, fewer than five. Fewer than five. I don't want to get into the specifics. I don't want to talk personal cases. It's, you know, it's fewer than five. Um, and so it, it was fewer than five, I think, and... What was fewer than five? It was ministers who held um, directly traded assets or something along through these a lines. Com- or through a company, yeah. So indirectly held traded assets, yes. So it, similar, exactly what Morneau was doing. Yes, and so this led to CTV. I know Glenn McGregor um, and Rachel Aleo had a piece on this where they looked friend at... Friend of the show. Friend of the show, where they looked at the holdings of all the different ministers and sort of what their situations were and how they were different. And so there was a few ministers, you know, uh, Jody Wilson-Raybo, among them the justice minister, yeah. who'd held shares through her husband and sort of yada, yada, yada. It was it, No one really thought it was that big of a deal. Um, but all of this is to say, because of Mary Dawson's statement, um, it spurred a new round of reporting just as the story was dying. Yeah. Um, of speculation as to which ministers and how many ministers. And then in question period, you had, you know, the optics of Pierre Polyev um, saying, which five ministers is it? Yeah. And then it sort of went back and forth until Mary Dawson eventually clarified, like quite a while later, several days later, um, that it was in fact only Morneau that she was referring to. Which, you know, why go through this entire rigmarole of like, oh, it's fewer than five, but more than three. 
At, it's like a riddle. It's like a freaking sphinx riddle. Like. But it, it was a stupid riddle <laughs> because it made the whole thing more convoluted and complicated. And I bet you there are people in PMO who were incredibly pissed off because well, PMO yeah. came out against her number. Yeah. And so then there were stories on the back and well, forth between PMO saying, no, we don't have any ministers that are doing what you're talking but about. But you know, the beauty of this is that their whole story for the last three weeks, their whole comms line has, has rested on... We support the conflict of interest commissioner, and we think, you know, why don't you just ask her? She'll tell you. And then when she is asked, she gives them information that they can test at the first opportunity. And, like, they were right to because it was wrong. But at the same time, it completely obliterates your smokescreen of, like, oh, we you have to count on the conflict of interest commissioner. She's, you know, above reproach and everything. So did not go well for them. Yeah, so along with her own personal failings in this, uh, of the pieces I mentioned... Um, the fact that there was sort of, I'd say, three to five noteworthy pieces um, that started to be very critical of her actions, this is sort of very interesting because the liberals were using her as the shield. Yeah, exactly. And so when your shield is coming in question, yeah, your shield doesn't look so good because everyone's saying, well, did Mary Dawson make the right move here? There was, there was a piece where a law professor, I believe from Osgood, um, I might have this wrong, um, was saying that he felt Mary Dawson's interpretation of directly controlled yeah. was fairly generous. Yeah, well, I mean, we talked about this last week, I think, but like... No, not on the show. Oh, okay. I think Just, yeah, just in chat, our own just, personal lives. We, we do chat. We do chat. But basically, I honestly think that if you're going... And like, she did recommend closing this. Yes. Uh, but if you're going to have a conflict of interest act where you can circumvent its provisions by holding assets through a corporation that you wholly control, you may as well not have a conflict of interest act. Like, I think it's just, like, preposterous to think that that alone is a sufficient sort of ethical screen uh, to make the conflict of interest not matter. So this was, this feeds into the argument of the lawyer that the Globe was quoting, and he said effectively that, like, because her her interpretation of this was contentious, and the fact that it was contentious means she should have erred on the side of caution. Yeah, and that, that by no means is it clear cut that yeah. it's very. If you control all of a country or all of a, country, <laughs> all of a company, yeah, um, that's like one step removed from you is that direct control. He would argue that there's sufficient legal space there. Yeah. That she should not have interpreted it so generously. Well, that was like Morneau's company, which like we I, I'm not going to speak to anybody else's situation because we, we don't know what they are. But Morneau's situation was that he held two companies, one in Ontario, one in Alberta. The Alberta company owned the majority of his stock in his family company. And that company was owned by himself, his wife, and the Ontario company. So like... I think you can probably safely say at that point that Bill Morneau probably has a fairly big input into how that numbered company that does absolutely nothing runs its affairs. Yes. I think that's probably fair to say. So all of that is to say um, this has been a big debacle. I would encourage people uh, to read. Uh, Andrew Potter had a piece. I, I haven't mentioned this one to you, I don't think. Um that sort of goes to the history of the Conflict of Interest Commissioner and I think significantly notes that her position is called the Conflict of Interest and Ethics Commissioner. Yeah. But she has no role in ethics. No. 
ethics fundamentally in the Canadian parliamentary system are determined by voters. Yeah. And and by the public. And to some degree, Parliament, in that they have a co- uh, you know code of conduct for members. Yes. Yeah. Um, but it's very much her role is only conflict of interest. Uh, That's her only like quasi judicial role. Yeah, yeah because she, she making power. She interprets ethics. legislation, yeah. and legislation doesn't really cover ethics. Ethics is a little too hazy to be codified. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, we've tried. And then, <laughs> and then the other criticisms of her, because I think it's worth noting, um, are that she has focused her energy um, over her tenure at picking on staffers for accepting a cup of coffee from a journalist. Sports games, or, tickets, that or, kind of thing. No, not, not even sports tickets. Like sports tickets are like notable things. She's yeah. she's gone beyond like the I'm gonna say Oilers because I have Edmonton roots, but Oilers tickets. Um, that's one thing, and I think yeah. everyone agrees that you know the, the sports tickets expensive. Yeah. You're in the box. You're getting no, but I mean all, at, cetera, at the same time, at the same time, like that is just much smaller fish than ministers owning substantial shares in public traded companies. Yes, but I think that's also a noteworthy fish. Whereas a lot of her fishing yeah, no, lately, this, this to extend this analogy, has been to coffee. And as a staffer, I remember there being meetings interpreting some of her newest rulings to be like, all right. If a journalist offers you a coffee, you have to pay for it. Like, you yeah. can't you can't do... And, like, just the most petty of things. Yeah, when it gets... When it introduces breaks into social niceties, I think you're, like, at a point where perhaps it's getting a little ridiculous. And so, you, you might have a slightly different opinion here. Another area where she's sort of crafted jurisprudence is what to do at receptions and whether or not accepting alcohol or gift bags. Gift bags... Are, are not things like iPhones. They're often like curd cheese and a glass mug. Yeah. Uh, I once got an apron that I promptly threw in the garbage. I got like, a small goodie bag of Halloween candy from PSAC the uh, other day. Look at that. Uh, on the street. <laughs> there they you go. Out. So I don't know. Actually, it wasn't really in my capacity as a staffer, but you know. There you go. See, things like this are, are yeah. where she has focused a lot of energy well, over we, the years rather talked. than. Yeah. Rather than, and most notably, they talk about she hasn't done or does not have the power to um, do compliance checks. Yeah. To do compliance checks with her rules, it's entirely voluntary. Or it's not voluntary, but it's like opt-in. Yeah. And so more now holding... And, and not only that, a, another point worth mentioning here is that she's toothless. So Morneau, having not declared a numbered company, regardless of whether it was holding you know a billion dollars in Russian bonds or some random company that ran his Airbnb in France... This resulted in a two hundred dollar fine. Yeah, and her statement on CTV about this was that you know generally the max she's allowed to fine in in these circumstances is five hundred dollars, which is pathetic. Um, well, certainly to a guy who you know is a billionaire or to you know, any MP who's making one hundred sixty thousand a year, a five hundred dollar fine is peanuts. So compliance there is about as good as you know. A speeding ticket is it getting you to not speed? Well, that's why no one speeds anymore. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And so she's toothless. She doesn't, you know, use her radar gun. Um, and so self-reported speed checks, right? Like, yeah. <laughs> like, why? How is, fast were you going? Oh yeah, the speed limit. Oh okay, good. Well, keep going. All right. And instead of that, she's basically worried about how fast bicycles are going on the sidewalk. Yeah. Um, it's That's a all, good analogy. It's all so well, ridiculous. We've, we've talked about this at length in another episode, but you know, there was that case with Vic Tays where it basically she she put forward a ruling that said, you know, if your conflict of interest like post employment, like if you're if you're doing work after 
uh, you leave office as a public office holder, whether it be a minister, you know, a special sort of assistant job, uh, the sort of significant dealings provision that's in the act applies to how the people on the other side of the table perceived a meeting. So this was a case with Vic Taves where he did some work for First Nation that he had some contact with as the uh, regional minister for Manitoba. And uh, she ruled that because the meeting was significant for that First Nation rather than for him as his min- as his, in his role as re- regional minister for Manitoba, uh, he was in contravention of the act, which we both, you can listen to our episode on this for, for more fulsome analysis. I think believe it's called a direct and significant dealing. Um, it, it's absurd because like how in the world can staffers know, right? Like it just doesn't make any sense. The evidentiary burden goes the wrong way. Um, so that that's kind of like what we mean is that Mary Dawson has really miffed like whiffed the ball several times on these kinds of things and really goes after the wrong things. And then you know even if she is forced to make some rulings that make sense. It's like, okay, you get slapped with your $200 fine and you, you go on with your day. Like, Yes, and not only that, she is, her role, um, this is back to the Potter piece, um, her role is effectively, whatever she does, it becomes highly, highly partisan. Yeah. And she is used de facto as a club for one party to beat over shield. the head. Or as a shield for one party to beat over the head of the other. Yeah. And so and we've seen both in the last month. So yeah. It's, uh, so her role is highly debatable as to the utility of this position. Not saying that there shouldn't be a position, but perhaps its current iteration is not the correct well, one. Well, I think also like Mary Dawson, retire, my friend. I think it is. I think she, you are. She can't retire because they won't appoint someone else. Yes, and that's a very <laughs> neat segue into our next topic, um, which is appointments. Yeah, so appointments um, most recently were in the news, um, and they, they've sort of made the news periodically uh, throughout the Liberals' first two years here, um, but the largest sort of blip on the radar was as it, ha- as it relates to judges, um, because there were some cases getting thrown out of court, um, because uh, due process, or I'm not a lawyer, whatever it was, <laughs> right to a fair and timely trial. Yeah, that was or, Arthur Jordan. Yeah, yeah. yeah Oliver Jordan, I think it was in Ottawa. There was effectively a murderer who was allowed to go free because the courts were so backlogged. Yeah. And so everyone was like... Not a good like, look. Not a good look. Everyone was like, yo, liberals, appoint, appoint more judges. And then Michael Spratt and sort of the left coalition were like, yo, charge less crimes. I mean, that, also a valid... That's partly where we need to fix uh, the yeah, system. Also a valid, valid point of view, I think. And then others were like, yeah, we really need judges to... Like Alberta in particular, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, were all uh, struggling from insufficient number of judges, and the whole system was getting delayed by this. And the Liberals' uh, defense here was effectively that, listen, we're trying to make this a less partisan process than it ever has be- before, been in history, and so we've we've made sort of these yeah. bodies to, you know, uh, recommend judges yeah. for election, well, sort of like with the Supreme Court, et cetera, yeah. et cetera, et cetera, and so we've... We've now set these up, and they were saying this about six months ago. Uh, we've now set these up, and so you should see judges get appointed more quickly. Can, can I circle back really quick to the, yeah. the notion of, you know, over law justice system? Uh, a, an important problem here, too, is, like, not just that you're waiting a long time for trial, but that you're, if you're, for instance, a low-income person, you're relying on legal aid. Your legal aid lawyer 
if there's a significant court backlog, has you know an absolutely ridiculous number of cases, and that's going to affect your representation just because they're not superhuman and only have so many hours in a day. Um, so it's it's really a problem, both from the point of view of you know working through a you know just doing justice, but also in the sense that people are not getting the defenses that they really should be entitled to, where you have a lawyer's you know full attention and that you're able to get reasonable work out of them instead of someone trying to work like you know 50 cases at a time or something like it's just ridiculous anyway continue not sure there's a a, as a as direct of a nexus between those two points No, absolutely there is because if if courts aren't moving quickly then you're going to end up with a lot of cases on your plate if you're in legal aid that's like Hmm. i mean the whole system is going to do that but it's just when legal aid is your only recourse and those people like cannot basically refuse <laughs> to take your case, like you're just gonna end up sitting on a big pile of them anyway. Sure. Uh, so I'll I'll just say let, let's put the judges aside, um, but instead look at another area which is less talked about because I think less people uh, sort of relate to it or understand it or are familiar with. But it's officers of parliament. Yeah. Um, there's what the conflict of interest commissioner uh, Mary Dawson is has had her mandate extended several times she is you know eager to retire i presume as are we all um probably more eager after last week (laughs) um she said on ctv that she hopes to have her investigation of justin trudeau wrapped up before a new commissioner is appointed um but at the same time and this is with regard to the billionaire island caper yes um but at the same time it's you know, there's sort of a conflict of interest, a, a questionable overlap between the Prime Minister's office appointing the conflict of interest commissioner. When he's under active investigation by that office, yes. Yes. It's a little awkward. Um, or if not him, then Minister X or Minister Y or take your pick. Yeah. Um, so that seems that seems problematic. Um, there's the official languages commissioner who had the unsuccessful attempt at appointing Madeline Mayer yeah. uh, several mind, months ago. And keep in mind, this whole process is these delays are coming at the expense of, oh because you know we have to appoint less partisan people and then they come around to appoint Madeleine Mayer and you can listen to our episode about that in some distance in the past that I now can't remember uh, but yeah no it's just kind of like well if that's the reason then why did you try to appoint this person but she did psychometric testing what was it that that was one of the talking points was oh. that they did some sort of quasi IQ testing and she was their top candidate. So oh. this this was their okay their well, sword or the, perha- perhaps their shield. Um, so yeah, there's official uh, language commissioner, which I suspect only Quebec cares about, and, and so yeah, and Francophone communities throughout the country, as as I am a member of, but mm-hmm. still, I I feel like. Generally, no one cares about the conflict of interest or the uh, official languages commissioner. Uh, Moving on, there's the lobbying commissioner, Karen Shepard. That one we do care about. Um, She, I believe, don't quote me on this, um, is also sort of in a Mary Dawson-esque position where she's well past and has been extended several times. And so looking to get out of there as well. Uh, I think the chief electoral officer. Yep. yep, and keep in mind, we're less than two years to an election at this point. Um, who, two years out is basically when election planning starts yep. for everyone, and I presume Elections Canada is no different. Um, so you'd think it would be important to have a chief electoral officer firmly cemented in their position by you now. You would think. Uh, information commissioner as well, I believe, which is really, really important for journalists and opposition, especially with regard to the changes they're bringing 
uh, to the uh, Access to Information Act, which have been fairly controversial. The RCMP commissioner. Um, Yeah, Paulson retired, I believe, in uh, June. Um, Yeah, I think it was in June. Um, So that one hasn't, to be fair, that one hasn't been lingering as an active uh, sort of uh, requirement for as long, but a government working proactively could have filled that position a lot sooner. You know, well, I mean, you know these people are retired. That, that's right? my so, like, point. It's not like dumb to like look ahead and be like, who do we want this in, in this position? That's my point. And not leave it vacant for six months. Uh, so I mean, I mean, we'll see. There, and there's a lot of changes that need to be spearheaded through the RCMP right now. Um, it's it's at a, actually a very pivotal point in terms of its existence, um, particularly with like the quasi-unionization drive going through right now and some other things. Um, So having an effective commissioner in there sooner rather than later will be very important. Uh, There's also the chairperson of the Mint, which, you know, someone's got to keep an eye on people trying to smuggle out enormous uh, chunks of gold in their butts. Uh, I mean, I will say our mint is top notch in doing quirky novelty coins. I, um, I agree. Yeah, they're great at that. So I don't, yeah. I don't know who buys quirky novelty coins. Keep them coming. That costs that costs more than their face value. But here we are. Yeah. Um, so all of this is just, and then along. So I should mention, along with all of these like obvious appointments, there are like hundreds. Of appointments that you will never hear of. Yeah. Everything from regional boards, the Veterans Tribunal of X. The member, a member, they were looking for two members for the Historic Sites and Monuments Board of Canada for New Brunswick and the Northwest Territories. Director of the Invest in Canada Hub. I don't even know what that is. I have no idea. I mean, I can kind of guess, but like. <laughs> the, na- the name seems self uh, explanatory. Yeah, a little bit. Uh, directors for Sustainable Development Technology Canada. Uh, yeah, no, good stuff. So all, all kinds of little uh, little boards and yeah, wangos. Government has hundreds and hundreds of these positions um, that no one's ever heard of and that all sorts of quirky people apply to. Um, when I was at Public Safety, uh, I had, I guess, the pleasure of, at points, reviewing resumes for people applying to some of our appointed uh, positions. Is it like gun boards of various kinds? Um, so... <laughs> Well, there is not the gun board. There is the minister's advisory. Uh, oh, because wasn't this kind I'm, of I'm, I'm forgetting the words. Um, the minister's advisory firearms roundtable. Well, wasn't there I, I have the words slightly jumbled here. Wasn't that a controversy recently? Like uh, the liberals appointed someone that didn't like guns and then the gun uh, people got really mad about it. Yeah, so speaking to this, the structure of... Um, God, I really wish I could remember the, the exact name of that this. That name sounds uh, plausible. This advisory group. Um, but it was the uh, the roundtable, the Minister's Advisory Council on Firearms, is, is what I'll call it. And uh, it's about maybe 10 people. And we had uh, our board consisted of experts from the firearm industry, from uh, former sports shooters, former industry people, uh, some law enforcement. And it was a good balance of that. The... Liberals under Ralph Goodale rejigged the board entirely, removed some of the firearm industry folks from it, and put on a lot more people from the anti-gun civil society. So, and it's it's easy to take this um, these two perspectives here and say like, aha, the conservatives had like industry stakeholders on the board, and the liberals are putting you know the civil society folks, and and I can get why. For people on the left or who who strongly oppose firearms, that seems like 
perhaps better. substantially better. Um, but the reality of it is when you're trying to balance these interests and you're trying to craft policy that's you know reflective of both sides of the industry, having people from uh, the firearms community, I think, is incredibly important to tell you what the consequences of this are. Firearms is a very highly technical field, especially when you're talking about like measures uh, such as, God, this this is so not my field, uh, but I'll, I'll try to speak to it Honestly, to the best like, of my ability. I, I, I have a good con- metaphor for this. It's like basically if you had a government board that was responsible for setting which editions of Dungeons & Dragons people were allowed to play, like you generate the same kind of like obsessive fury and uh like voluminous rage about minor things that 99 percent of humanity would not care about yeah so so one of the one of the particular areas again i will fully concede that this is well outside of my expertise having never fired a gun in my life oh i've got you there <laughs> i've got you there as the as the conservative from alberta i've never shot anything greater than a yeah as gun. the the quebec quebecer west coast guy <laughs> Uh, yeah, I've shot guns. It was I, great. I actually had a ton of fun. I never have, so I, I concede there. Um, but there's the UN marking regulations, I believe it's called, um, that requires some sort of stamping on firearms. Uh, that on one side, the industry says, like, this is, like, a substantial amount of effort. This is going to cripple our industry. Mm-hmm. And on the other side, you have people saying, um, like, obviously being able to track guns is better. They're yeah. not being able to track guns. I mean, I think that's a fair point of view, but then, of course, so, there's trade-offs, so right? That, like, yeah, so there's yeah. certainly trade-offs, but if you don't have people from the industry on it, you're not going to know how these things impact the industry. Yeah. And so having industry representation on this roundtable as well as, I think, any roundtable is highly, highly useful. Yeah. Especially when you're talking about I mean, how to regulate their industry. I think, like, everything else, it's, it's balance. Like, it's about balance. Uh, but... Especially on advisory boards, like, you do actually want to hear a lot of different points of view. And I understand that, but, and I'll probably be hated for this position, but but I often think when it comes to highly technical areas, that sometimes civil society groups don't bring highly technical opinions and perspectives. I think they often bring well-known perspectives that the same things they say in public are the same things they say in private. Yeah. So having them around the table is often not as useful as having, you know, different views from within the industry. Yeah. I think there is... I, I don't disagree with what you say in the sense that, like, the technical sophistication of civil society groups is, I think, inevitably not going to be quite up to the mark of industry groups for, like, obvious reasons of funding, of interest, etc. They just don't have the capacity to develop that kind of technical expertise at the same level and breadth as the industries. Um, at the same time, I think having them there is like, yeah, obviously you could Google search their fact sheet and like you put the fact sheet on the table and you say, okay, let's, let's assume this fact sheet can talk. But at the same time, having that flesh and blood human being at the table, I think, does have value. And especially we live in a democracy where like we do these things by, you know, consent of the governed and like yeah, like, I kind of agree that civil society groups aren't always going to bring the, like, highest degree of, like, technical points that are, like, really gonna make the difference at the end of the day, but they are valuable people to have so that you have buy-in, if nothing else, into the regulations. The the other thing I will say is it also depends on um, sort of the direction that you want to take firearms policy in the country. 
Um, obviously, conservatives took firearm policy in a different direction than historically liberals had. And so the people you want around the table are perhaps the people best positioned to advise you on that policy in the direction you're taking it. Yeah, which makes a certain amount of sense. So you want not, ne- not necessarily just like-minded people, uh, and that's why often um, the voice of disagreement was uh, policing. Yeah. Because police, um, RCMP like or any of the others, like to have yeah. monopoly over firearms possession. Yeah, which, fair enough. So, I understand that. <laughs> so to a certain extent, that was um, one of the voices bouncing at the, the round table. Yeah. Um, one, of the cons- uh, one of the criticisms of it, and Michelle Rempel has been pushing this point a lot, is that on the flip side of this, uh, on the new rebalance table... Um, there is a large amount of people around the table who have who don't have their basic firearms register or uh, licenses. Yeah, their PAL. Um, so they've never done the firearm testing. They have no idea how the firearm regime in Canada works. Well, they've never been tested on their formal knowledge of it. I think is a more fair way to put that. But yes, but at the same time, being tested on your formal knowledge and having gone through the process, yeah. you'd think would be one of the most critical things. I mean, like, I can see if you're someone who knows a lot about guns but has no interest in shooting them, like, why would you bother getting it? Because you need to have the context. If you're going to make advice for how uh, the Canadian firearms regime should be administered, you should at least be willing to take a weekend course to do the book. Yeah. I, I don't care who you are. If you're in civil society, if you're for uh, an organization against firearms entirely... The bare minimum of research you can do, in my opinion, is to take the course. That it doesn't it doesn't mandate that you own guns. It has you sit through it. Has you learn what people go through, what the knowledge is, the difference between an automatic and a semi-automatic, the difference between X and Y, basic technical things yeah. with firearms. I mean, I think you can learn. Like as you pointed earlier, I think you. You can learn that stuff elsewhere, but I think we're, we're getting very deep down the firearms rabbit hole, <laughs> uh, which is what inevitably happens with firearms. So I, um, I think to, to make this more broadly applicable, because again, I'm, I'm not, I know substantially better placed people for advocating about firearms um, than myself, but I think what it comes down to is talking about when you're, when you're deciding any of these roundtables or these boards and you're determining how you want to balance these boards, I think there's a lot of value in having people who are from the industry side or directly related to the industry and that the um, civil society stakeholder groups should be heavily invested. They should not be individuals whose quarter time job it is. They have some nonprofit that occasionally sends out literature. I don't think they bring necessarily like Obviously, I'm trying to make this as broadly applicable as possible, but I don't think they bring necessarily the best voice. It's sort of like putting um, a tax board together where you have, you know, all your economists and then you have, like, your university libertarian kid as, like, an equal partner at the table. <laughs> like, that's just sort of how I see it rolling out sometimes. Uh, actually, is anyone at this table ever considered that taxation is theft? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that would not go well. And I, I think that could be fairly criticized, and I think you see that less often if the uh, university libertarian kid in Sankey, your undergrad, who says, have you ever taken an econ course, um, has an organization entitled, you know, X for Citizen, Citizens for Liberty. Yeah. It would all, it would in, like, 
inevitably be called that. Anyway, oh. um, <laughs> this is not on schedule, or this is not. Yeah, we are. We're very on schedule. Now. That's fine. That's fine. Uh, the, the thing we did want to talk about after this was uh, the Senate has actually had some changes. Uh, fairly big ones, actually. The Independent Senators Group has uh, become I, the plurality. Yeah, ISG. ISG, which is really, like, doesn't sound like a topping. Um, <laughs> sort of flavor enhancer. It's legislation <laughs> enhancer, if you will. Uh, the ISG. That's how they should, that's how they should brand, actually. Uh, and speaking of, they're hiring, uh, they're, they're beefing up their operations. Uh, now that they're the plurality, they have a bunch of members. They can sort of pool their budget. Yeah, and in the next few weeks, um, there's anticipated to be a shuffle of cabinet committees. Senate or sorry, committees. Ooh, not different things. Yeah, uh, Senate committees um, to see the ISG um, or take more chairmanships. I, I I'm really struggling hard not to say ISG group. <laughs> oh, that's terrible! The, Don't do that. To see the ISG group. Ah, you just get, did it. <laughs> yeah, I know. Get greater representation because one well, chairmanships, that kind of thing. Yeah, chairmanships, vice chairmanships. Uh, so I don't have the numbers in front of me, but right now the Conservatives and the Liberals will both lose, particularly the Liberals, will lose a fair number yeah. of chairmanships and positions yeah. on uh, Senate committees to yeah. the independent senators. Well, because a lot of Liberal senators have gone over to the ISG, which I think was like as designed, you know, I think that was like sort of the intention. Yeah. Not been- as many Conservatives have. A handful actually have. Yes. But not a ton. There have been some from both parties uh, that have been bleeding. The idea is sort of you get... Like, to a certain extent, why wouldn't you? If you're a senator that sort of has light partisan affiliation and was never super partisan, or perhaps the party has done something to irk you lately. Yeah. I mean, you're in, you've got your job. And you're accountable to, yeah, exactly. You're accountable to no one. Like, no one can even bother you if you're independent, really. Like, yeah. it's, it's pretty great. You just get off the train and stop pretending to be, uh, to be with any party and yeah. just. I guess govern by not govern but legislate by your whim. Yeah, yeah, and we will see exactly what comes of that. I think it could be interesting. Certainly, like the ISG, I think we're placing a lot of faith in. Uh, and I, I have to give it to Trudeau; he has appointed people of pretty high quality uh, across the board. I think uh, Etienne's making some faces here. I, I make some faces just because I think it was CBC's. Uh, what's his poll tracker guy? Uh, Eric Grenier. Eric Grenier did an analysis of where they voted and yeah. what and what the ISG did and it was these people whilst having you know in most cases very prestigious resumes generally all fall into the you know the oh, yeah no I, I types. don't yeah I don't wouldn't contest that in the slightest and yeah. whilst yeah whilst they are not um I mean, a few aren't, but, like, well, I would agree that most are. Whilst they're not big L liberals, they yeah. sort of fall within similar archetypes. There there was no one, you know, revolutionary appointed. There was no, you know, hot dog vendor from Bang. That would or be great, actually. any common man or, or things yeah. like that. And so I think if the government doesn't change its formula of who it's appointing and sort of just points, you know, the most prestigious people from academia and business. Yeah, it's sort of like all the people who are at the most boring orgy in town. <laughs> what? I mean, it's all like art gallery directors and like, you know, NGO people and they're all like very like, you know, advanced folk. Yeah, I think there's eventually going to be a problem if, if it continues in this vein of having, you know, the cosmopolitan elites have and you know what they a do? cosmopolitan elite perspective on yeah. things. When you appoint, when the liberals appoint, 
you know, a retired hay farmer from the prairies. Yeah. That's when I'll applaud their choices. Fair enough. No, but, I, I, but I agree with you on that. But the way that they have structured it, it's sort of like, let's appoint our society's elites and only our society's elites. Yeah. And I think the Senate should be more. Than yeah, that. and I guarantee you we will get like weird orgy bills from the Senate now that it's all that. <laughs> it's, that dude, come on. It's what rich people do. You know this. Um, yeah, so that'll be interesting to watch the Senate. Uh, hopefully not have to watch its uh, after-hours activities. And I think it'll be one of the sleeper issues uh, going into this next session, um, particularly with legislation such as C-45, which is, of course, the Cannabis Act. Um, to have this group of senators being, you know, 65-plus white males... Yes. Um, try and some wrap, of them are, try and ha- have yeah. them wrap their heads around. Some of them are really epic doorknobs. Like it really has to be said. Like there are some very dumb people in the Senate and in the House, but you know, as as there will be in any group of yeah. a couple hundred people. Well, it's hundred and six. They have no excuse. I was rolling the House in there. <laughs> <laughs> um, but having having them wrap their heads around this, and there's some senators always said like, we don't care about the deadlines the government set, which. Admittedly, the deadline of July 1st for cannabis legalization is entirely it, a political it is a, deadline. It is a dumb deadline. Um, entirely a political deadline. But it also, you don't want to drag legislation in the next session. Maybe they're going to prorogue, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It'll be interesting to see how hung up legislation gets in the Senate, particularly with more ISG folks in there in more significant roles. Yeah. Um, and less control by the Liberal caucus. Well, because, I mean, harder. typically you would have been able to prorogue on a schedule you rely on, legislatively speaking, because you, typically you're going to have control of the other chamber or you're going to have a sort of, like, entente with them to sort of get things moving as needed. But now, who knows, you know? Uh, we will see what happens, and especially, as you said, there is sort of an intention to prorogue in the kind of midterm future, um, in all likelihood. I think that would be not surprising to any of us. Uh, yeah, we'll see what happens, because I don't think they want a lot of their legislation sort of hostage to the notice paper. Or the order paper, rather. Um, Which is how Senate kills legislation. Exactly, and, as we found out recently. And the Cannabis Act is... Sort of marquee it, legislation they can't afford to it not is let through. Such a com- yeah, marquee legislation, such a complicated uh, piece of legislation with so many controversial aspects yeah. that it's going to be hard for senators to resist the temptation... To grandstand and... To grandstand make a name for and themselves. to amend it to death and to pick sides one way or the other on X minutiae. Uh, yeah. of the bill. They're going to have to take off their golden bird masks and uh, come back to join the rest of humanity. <laughs> <laughs> oh, fun times. Uh, did you want to talk about this uh, OPQ story? Just to mention it briefly, I, I like reiterating, especially through this media, uh, or medium rather. Yeah, I wasn't going to correct uh, you, but I was ugh. thinking it. I was thinking it. Two two beers deep is, is not the best. Yeah, no, to, I know. We've chill, both been that. Yeah, right no, it's, it's bad. Yeah. That's um, why we have our, usually have our one beer rule, but... Through this medium um, is that... I, I like reiterating how OPQs make news because they are so... Unknown like, to, unknown most, people, to yeah. most people. And most stories don't like just gloss over them as the mechanism for documents these things obtained, coming to light. Documents obtained by CBC News or, you know, emailed to you by an MP or, or whatever. Government releases X or, or yeah. what have you. 
Um, so pointing to the OPQs, uh, another an older OPQ, so parliamentary question for people who don't. Yeah, we do have an explainer on this somewhere in the archives. Or, also. or just Google it at this point. Also that. Um, kicked off another round of particularly social media debate. Um, because a parliamentary question had asked the Ministry of Climate Change and climate things. Environment climate change. Uh, what, uh, if they'd ever purchased any Lexuses, Porsches, Teslas, etc., etc., etc. Fancy cars. Fancy cars. And the OPQ came back and it said... Yes, 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 we have. We've purchased many of these things. And from... I haven't done any particular investigative reporting of myself... Um, but apparently Ezra ran this story in September. Ezra Levant. Yes. Okay, that, that being yeah. the only yeah, notable the only Ezra, Ezra yeah. in Canadian politics, my Carry knowledge. Um, ran this story with his typical climate Barbie, gets driven around in Tesla's yada, yada, yada. Um, and it didn't go anywhere. It, it died as a rebel story, perhaps because of his framing. On borrowing, on, perhaps because he's a colossal idiot. I'm borrowing a little from John Iveson's analysis here. Um, so it didn't really go anywhere until a screen grab of the OPQ resurfaced on social media this past week. A conservative MP's Twitter. What? Yes. I mean, that's that falls I mean, under my umbrella statement. No, I know. Statement. I was, I was okay. just specifying. Um, it and is important to know. It, it basically said, yeah, we bought a Porsche, we bought this, we bought this, this, this. And then they said... So they kicked it over to McKenna and Butts waited on this as well. Jerry Butts. Jerry Butts, the minister, or sorry, the prime minister's... Principal secretary. Principal secretary. Um, and he, they basically said, these vehicles are purchased and have been purchased for the past seven years uh, as a way for governments to do, you know, emissions, aerodynamics, whatever, yeah. uh, tests on. And so when, then they when sell they them got, afterwards. And then they sell them afterwards. And so critics like Iveson pointed out that, like, the EPA in the United States has a slightly different mechanism for getting these vehicles for cheaper... Um, does Which it make sense? Does enough. it make sense for government to be buying, you know, the fanciest of vehicles and then selling them back for thirty thousand under asking at an auction on yeah. GC uh, GC auctions or whatever it is? GC auctions, yeah. Which sells all sorts of sort of curious government crap. Just um, everything you can really imagine. I have seen lots for pounds worth of N sixty fours. To huh. DVDs, to, you know, a metric ton of cabling, like, all sorts of vehicles. It's fun to sort of go on when you're bored from time to time and see see what there is. Um, but by no means is it the best way for government to sell assets. Yeah. But it is. Sounds like a great way to get a deal on Tesla, though. <laughs> yeah, if you're ever looking for a Tesla, yeah. you have $60,000 to spend or whatever it is, and you, uh, you stumble upon it on GC Auctions, you'd think... If the bidding process is not going to be that competitive. This is just, like, fundamentally my problem. One problem with government. Why the hell don't they just use eBay? Instead of having... I wonder how many people visit GC Auctions and, like, how broad... The reach is and everything. The reach of it is and whether or not, you know, it's two people that you're bidding against for that beat-up van that public services used for maintenance. Uh, as opposed to, you know, just selling government assets on eBay. I, I'm not opposed to that. You yeah, like, I don't know. I'm sure there there is a reason, probably having to do with, like, you know, they don't own the infrastructure for it. And probably having to do with needing to fund or hire more civil servants to do more civil servanty things. Also possible, I'll concede. Uh, but yeah, so, okay, so there's a story kind of breaking today. We're recording this Sunday evening. I'm going to try to get the episode out 
so you can listen Tonight. to it Monday morning. Tonight. I'm going to try. I'm going to try. Um, uh, called the Paradise Papers. There's sort of another big leak of papers from a, you know, sort of fancy law firm that specializes in clients uh, doing tax avoidance. Um, we're not going to talk about it yet. It does seem like there's a political angle uh, because it sounds like a sort of like prominent fundraiser and revenue chair, I believe, something like that, for the Liberal Party is kind of implicated in this. I think we'll just wait for it to shake out a bit more before we weigh in, except to say that I think this sort of like really ties into the story that with more no that we've been talking about, that sort of the Liberal Party has been having a lot of trouble in the last month making it seem like they are the party of the middle class. I think uh, we want to put a pin in it there with that. Unless you have another uh, comment on it, but... No, I think it'll be interesting to see how it develops, and uh, it sucks for the liberals because it... Yeah, they've... It, it reiterates the narrative of them as, you know, cozy to billionaires, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Well, because they are. Um, the I'll, I'll, I want to make, actually, a quick historical note here. Yes, this was actually worthwhile, so go ahead. Uh, <laughs> thank you for your <laughs> approval. Um, the quick historical note here is... I think a lot of casual observers of Canadian politics will tend to see the Conservative Party as sort of akin to the Republican Party in terms of who they associate with and how close they are to business, et cetera, et cetera, in Canada. And I think there's actually a notable distinction to be made here in the sense that post the uh, conservative or the progressive conservatives joining with the Reform Party, and then the Conservatives under Stephen Harper taking power, the Conservative Party wasn't actually that close to Bay Street and to sort of big business. That historically in the past, let's say 20 years, because perhaps greater than 20 years, maybe 27 years, that the party of big business has actually been the Liberal Party. And I think a lot of sort of people of our generation uh, of my generation, young twenty-somethings, are sort of would be sort of confused by that well, notion. I think the liberals have never made a big secret in the last you know couple of years about being very, very, very friendly with big business. It's just that the the big business they've chosen to associate with is mostly Silicon Valley. Though, of course, they are still friendly with the very like traditional big business as well. But yeah, I mean, I think that's like not you know they haven't changed that much. So I I think this. For casual observers and people who grew up at my year, and if you're not, or in my sort of millennial age bracket, that if you're not aware of sort of the history of how the Reform Party came in and sort of subsumed the Progressive Conservative Party, that you tend to think of the Conservative Party in Canada as akin to the Republicans and sort of beholden to Wall Street, where the history of Canada is sort of different than that. That the Reform Party. Bay Street, so the equivalent, the Canadian equivalent of Wall Street, was petrified of the Reform, Reform Party. Yeah. And so for years and years and years, while the Conservatives were in power, they had no linkages to big business, yeah. to Bay Street. Yeah, it is worth saying that like the PC side of that party uh, was very friendly with Bay Street, as the Liberals were, much like as in the US, the, both Democrats and Republicans are very friendly with Wall Street. Uh, there's like not a distinction on that issue. Uh, I would agree with you that reform was much more leery of, like, big finance. I would still say that, like, the conservatives were very friendly with different parts of big business, like big extraction, uh, especially mining, oil, uh, forestry. I think, like, a lot of conservative connections there. Yeah. Less with banking, admittedly. So, uh, yeah. So when it comes to the natural resource sector, you, you can sort of see that naturally being if 
uh, reform is coming from the alienated West. Yeah. That the big business that you're going to be... Yeah, an agribusiness, too. Close to... Um, is that which is rooted in your base, which is Western Canada. So yeah. it's going to be, you know, the fertilizer companies, agribusiness, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Um, but specifically, I'm, I'm trying to focus on, on finance, sure. on finance okay. and Bay Street. And so growing up, um, people of my generation don't really, because we were too young, uh, for the Chrétien Martin era liberals and their linkages to Bay Street sort of get forgotten in our, you know... Yeah, exactly. 14-year-old minds at that point. Not something you think about. Um, and now that the Trudeau government is in power and he's of a younger generation and he's, you know, talking all progressive and X, Y, Z... Yeah. It's easy to forget the historical linkages of the Liberal Party to... That continue. That, that continue you know, to Bay yeah. Street. And to Silicon Valley now, too, which is, I think, the big new sort of big corporate cluster. And so I think it's really interesting to sort of see this um, narrative organically redevelop of the liberals being too close to billionaires, X, yeah. billionaires, billionaires, Y... Um, McKinsey, Dominic Barton, take your pick. Yeah, well, there's some deep cuts there, Tian. I don't think people are going to know what you're talking about there. Why? Because it's kind of like... Most people don't remember that story. Just you want uh, to give a quick summary of it? Well, it's just that Dominic Barton uh, is a, a very well-known uh, head of McKinsey, which is a large... It's a global of, consultancy firm like on par with many other large ones. Yeah, and so the liberals have used Dominic Barton and some of his advice yeah. to structure their platform, or not their, necessarily their platform because it wasn't pre-election, um, but their policy direction post-government. Yeah, and things, he was on like a corporate social responsibility council on behalf of the government and some other stuff. Things I like that's correct. Things like the infrastructure bank yeah. um, were done with it, the advice of McKinsey's, uh, McKinsey and Dominic Barton's recommendations. Yeah, so I think we'll, we'll put a pin in it there just to say we're not super surprised with these revelations and we are excited to see how this will turn out and we'll be talking about it probably in more depth next time and look at the historical linkages between the liberal party and big business i mean i not not to say big business is bad i do think this is bad (laughs) uh just to clarify i think it's terrible um do you want to wrap up with the talk about uh, the liberals two-year anniversary which is tonight it is uh is it tonight specifically well it's yeah the fifth was when they had the swearing in yeah you're right yeah i am right this is so. In fact, to make it a personal anniversary is two years since I was <laughs> since I resigned since I forcefully resigned from government. Yeah, well, congratulations. Uh, yay! <laughs> I need one of those little kazooie party, party. Yeah. <laughs> ornate bird mask. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so two years um, I was actually listening to the Huffington Post podcast that did a pretty good summary of sort of the liberal successes and failings over those past two years Um, so that won't be my concluding point Uh, I will instead say that this means we're also approximately two years out from the next election Yep. and just sort of internally this means that this is sort of the threshold where government um, cuts loose those who want to Go do something else. Go do something else to take their two years of political staffing experience and to transition into the private sector and leverage another two years of guaranteed, or not guaranteed access, but of intimate knowledge to the administration um, to the best of their ability within ethical guidelines and requirements and all that. Especially now that also like the liberal, or sorry, the conservatives and the NDP also have both both have new leaders, excuse me, Uh, there's this... It's going on on their side of the, the house as well. Like, people are kind of, like, 
forming their teams that they're going to be going into re-election with um, and, you know, forming teams to go and do preparatory work for target writings, that kind of stuff. So all that kind of stuff is really starting to take shape right now. So Which... From, from an outside perspective, seems ridiculous at two years out, but yeah, this well, is... These are enormous operations that cost millions of dollars a day, and you want a lot of planning. And frankly, compared to like an endeavor of a similar size that a corporation would be doing, you're doing it on a shoestring budget with very distracted staff that have a million other things on their mind. Yeah. So I think it is... Uh, yeah, I, I think you, you framed it well there, which is to say that if you think of a corporation... Um, going into a very risky, risky venture where there's about a 50% chance that they'll succeed. Let's just use arbitrary odds. Um, two years from now, and they're going to spend millions of dollars getting there, yeah. and their lifeblood of an organization depends on this. Yep. Um, you're going to invest a lot of... And you're going to take your time. A lot of time <laughs> into that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So um, I think we'll wrap it up there except for our beer review. Sure. Let's talk beer. Uh, we started out, yeah, we had two beers, which is not usually what we do because we tend to get a little silly if we've had more than one, which you probably picked up. Um, I start to forget names very easily. Yeah, and I make jokes about rich people having orgies. Um, anyway, uh, what we had, we had a Bellwoods Brewery as teaming up with Left Field Brewery. They're both in Toronto, I believe. Yeah, they're both in Toronto, two of, I think, the top five breweries in Ontario, if I've, not Canada. I've never had Left Field before, but I've had Bellwoods products before, and they've never failed uh, to impress. Uh, so this was a friendly confines, uh, strong stout <laughs> with coffee, cocoa, and coconut. It really, I mean, Etienne loves stouts. I like them. I would say this is exactly what I expected in the sense that it was a pretty good stout with tones of coffee, cocoa, and coconut. I didn't taste the coconut very much. Not but... as much. Uh, certainly the coffee and cocoa. I mean, yeah. that's like most stouts. So yeah, no, pretty good. I mean, like, Etienne, do you have any other, like, did you like it more than I did? Uh, I found it to be a very good stout, and I like stouts a lot, and I like stouts that taste heavily of coffee and chocolate. He does. So it yeah. fit that mold perfectly. Yeah, but nothing like, this doesn't like knock anybody off a throne here? No, uh, Ciel out of Montreal has a, uh, has a stout called Peche Mortel, which translates to? Mortal Sin. Mortal Sin, or Deadly Sin, or yeah. however you want to translate it, um, which is... An absolutely phenomenal one. It's probably my favorite stout in the world. So, okay. strong recommendation for anyone in Montreal to go to Jersey Cell. Yeah, you can find it here in Ottawa too at uh, various you, reta- you retailers and brewers. Maybe can. Yeah, I haven't found Peche Mortel specifically other, around. Other beers of theirs. But yeah, yeah, their beers are actually fairly common in Montreal. You can buy them any Depp. Yeah, um, here in Ottawa, a bit rarer, but you can yeah. find them at fine bars. I would say. Why beer focus bars? Just yeah, one or two. <laughs> just and then L- LCBOs casually, but yeah. okay. LCBOs are the worst, as we know. Yes, they are. So that'll take us to our second beer, uh, which is from uh, Collective Arts, which is they were based in Hamilton, I believe. I call it Toronto. I don't okay. know the difference. Fair enough. It's all Toronto to me. That fair enough. Uh, and this is called Wet Hop, uh, which is kind of a weird name, but it was. Uh, do you want to describe the beer? I mean, it's. <laughs> I don't know if its name is Wet Hop so much as it is a wet hopped beer. I mean, it just says Wet Hop on it. So. Uh, um, it tasted like a wet hop pale ale. What wet hopping means is a beer is wet hopped. This is sort of harvest season for hops. Um, typ- for many other typically, things. hops are processed um, into sort of pellets. Like if you've ever fed a rabbit pellets, they become sort of these alfalfa pellet type things. And that's how breweries use hops, you know, 98% of the time. Uh, a wet hopped beer uses the actual full unprocessed hop, um, which has the water content, 
um, and has a bit of a grassier taste than a processed, refined, dried hop. Yeah. Um, so wet hop beers are basically common only at this time of year. Um, this is the second... Because like any hoppy beer, too, they, they skunk a lot faster than most others. Well, it's not skunking. They don't skunk. Skunking comes from a very specific chemical process. Okay, so they, I think they were less good very um, quickly. The hop characteristics change over time. Yes, as we've found out to our chagrin with several sip of sunshine. And other, and other <laughs> yes. Things. So, you, yeah, your very good IPAs will uh, degrade in flavor over a few months, but they won't go skunky. Skunky is largely attributed to the impacts of sunlight on beer. Um, I stand corrected. Which is why beers in clear or green bottles often taste skunky. Yeah. Uh, that's why Heineken... Only used dark bottles, guys. Heineken and Corona both taste like crap half the time. And apparently, one of the reasons why Corona encourages you to put lime or lemon in the to beer... That. ...is to cover the skunky flavor. It's not a terrible idea. Uh, do you want to talk about what you thought of the beer? Or or they could just use a dark bottle. They could, but that would ruin their... Re- like, Negro Modelo does it. And Dos Equis both. Anyway, carry on. Um, So the beer itself is actually very good. It's the second hot beer that I've ever had. Uh, The first one from Dominion. I liked a little less. It had a little more of the grassier flavor. This one was pretty subdued. It smelled like a lawnmower bag. Well, I mean, that's sort of what you mean when you say grassy. Yeah. Um, yeah. The lawnmower. The moisture. And and in fact, if you watch... Sommeliers, one of the for wine, one of the flavor sort of profiles that they'll refer to is freshly cut grass, yeah, or as grass, or freshly cut tennis balls, or all sorts of ridiculous things, or garden hose is another one, like some of these like chemically bizarre ones. And anyway, uh, I would agree with Etienne that this was pretty good and kind of interesting. I'd recommend trying it, especially as it's sort of seasonally limited. Yeah, yeah, worth a shot. That'll do it for us this week. Uh, Thanks for listening, everyone, and uh, we'll uh, we'll be in touch. Very soon. Bye, everyone. Bye.